On behalf of Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our pastor and teacher, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study designed to help us grow in the Word. John chapter 1, verses 6 through 13. If you'll follow along as I read our text now, John chapter 1, verses 6 through 13. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. May the Lord bless uh, his word and our time together in it. You may be seated. If you were not here last week, you missed hearing that we're going to take a short break from Ephesians, because I want us to take some time to learn more about Jesus and and who he is. And I know that that sounds rather elementary, but it's not. It is not. I want us to learn more about Jesus and who he is and, and all that he is as he's presented to us in the scriptures. And the fact that Christianity is all about Christ and knowing him, being in relationship with him, loving him, serving him, and pursuing him make this a very worthwhile endeavor. It certainly will not be a waste of our time. And we began last week by asking ourselves the question, uh, is Christ himself the attraction of Christianity for you? Is Christ himself the attraction of Christianity for you? You know, is Jesus himself the attraction for you? Are you pursuing him? You know, is, is, is it Jesus you love first and foremost? I mean, is it your goal in life to know him? And that was a cry of Paul's heart, right? That I might know him. Do you want Jesus more than anything? Or is it that you simply just don't want to go to hell and you'd like to have all the benefits and blessing of salvation, but pretty much live for yourself? You know, are you pursuing a deeper and more intimate relationship with Christ himself? I mean, do you want to know more and more and more of him? And for believers, there can be no greater goal in the world. Are you pursuing him? You know, many in the church today make the mistake of thinking that knowing and being acquainted with facts about Jesus' life and ministry 
equals a real intimate relationship with him. But nothing could be further from the truth. So we need to reacquaint ourselves with the Lord Jesus and the Word of God, and it begins with asking ourselves who Jesus is. I mean, who is Jesus Christ? And as I said last week, this is such a vitally important question because on your answer to that question hang all of the issues of life and death, good and evil, truth and falsehood, heaven and hell. And so for a few weeks, we're going to be looking at some of the important passages in the New Testament that deal with the identification of Jesus. And hopefully and prayerfully, as we look at these astonishing and and amazing truths, they will reacquaint us with the greatness, the glory, and the beauty of who Jesus is. And this, in turn, hopefully and prayerfully, will stir up in us the love and the sense of wonder that once characterized our lives as new believers and then cause us to pursue him with a renewed zeal so that our master passion in life would be like Paul, you know, to know Christ, that I might know him. Well, last week we began in John chapter 1, uh, verses 1 to 18, which is one of the great passages about who Jesus is. Last Sunday morning, we looked at the first five verses. In verses 1 and 2, John presented the Word, or Jesus Christ, as the eternally preexistent God and second member of the Trinity. In verse 3, John declared that Jesus Christ, the eternal God, is the Creator. He created everything that came into being, everything that exists, He made. All things, He said, were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And then in verses 4 and 5, John declared that in Christ was life, that he himself is life. He is the source, the origin, the fountainhead of life, all life. And the life, John says, was the light of men. Jesus is the eternal life of God in human flesh, manifesting like light, shining in the darkness of a sinful world. And John also told us that the light cannot be overcome by the darkness. And now as we come to verses 6 and 13, John tells us in verse 9 that Jesus is the true light that came into the world. In verses 10 and 11, he tells us about Jesus' reception by men. And then in verses 12 and 13, he tells us that it's Jesus who gives the right to be children of God. And then he tells us in verse 13 what makes one a child of God. But before he speaks of Jesus, in verses 6 to 8, the Apostle John sort of abruptly turns to speak of Jesus' forerunner, John the Baptist. And that's in verses 6 to 8, and we're going to move through that uh, maybe a little uh, quicker than we normally would, but let's look at verses 6 and 8. John begins in verse 6 by saying, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. And so the Apostle, first of all, says uh, there was a man. You know, up to this point in verses 1 to 5, he's been talking about the eternal Son of God, the the second member of the Trinity who created all that was made, who is the source and fountainhead of life, and this life is the light of men. But now he makes it clear that he's talking about a mere man. He says there was a man. So from the Word who was God, the Holy Spirit now turns to speak of the forerunner of Christ. He's he's referred to here as a man to show us, by way of contrast, that the one he came to bear witness to was much more than a man. And the name of this man was 
John, which means gift of God. Now, John the Apostle is not talking about himself. When he says there was a man whose name was John, he is not referring to himself. He's talking about John the Baptist, because John the Apostle does not name himself in his entire gospel. And so every time the name John appears, it refers to John the Baptist, except for four references to Peter's father. So here, John the Apostle introduces us to John the Baptist, who is the only person in human history of whom it is said that he was filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. John the Baptist's birth uh, itself was miraculous in that his older parents had previously been unable to conceive. John the Baptist was the last of the Old Testament prophets, and according to Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, he was the greatest man who had ever lived up until his time. Well, why would Jesus say that? Well, because no man ever had a greater responsibility or a more privileged duty. John introduced people to the Messiah. That, that made him greater in terms of responsibility and privilege than anyone who had ever lived. And so the apostle tells us that John was a man sent from God. In other words, uh, John had a divine commission. He didn't take it upon himself to try to be the forerunner of Christ. He didn't, this wasn't an office that he seized for himself. No, he had a divine commission from God. God sent John in fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, which says, A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Also in Malachi 3.1, God said, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. John was a man sent from God. And John's purpose was clear. Look back at verse 7. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. So John came as a witness. He's a mere man, but he's sent by God to be a witness. Now, a witness is a person with some experience and knowledge that, that can help establish the truth of some fact that is in dispute. A witness is one who knows what he says and says what he knows. A witness doesn't deal with speculations. He doesn't speak his own opinion, but rather he testifies to what he knows to be the truth. Well, God had spoken to John the Baptist in the wilderness about the coming Messiah, and his meeting with Jesus at our Lord's baptism gave John the Baptist the experience he needed to be a bona fide witness. In John chapter 1, verses 33 and 34, this is what we read. I myself did not know him, speaking of John the Baptist, I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. And so God had spoken to John earlier about the one who was coming, and then he gave him a sign to let him know that Jesus was this one. And from then on, John bore witness to Jesus faithfully, uh, that is, until he was put to death for it. And John's mission was not to exalt himself, but again to be a witness. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. So John came to be a witness about the light, in other words, about Christ so that all might believe through him. And that doesn't refer to Christ, but John the Baptist as the agent who witnessed to Christ. So the purpose of John's witness or his testimony was to bear witness about the light so that people might come to believe in Christ. 
but he was to bear witness about the light. I don't know if you've ever thought about those words, but those are some very sobering words. He came to witness, to bear witness about the light. That's very sobering. You say, well, I don't understand. Well, just how sobering they are becomes apparent if we ask a simple question. When the sun is out and brightly shining, who are the ones that are unconscious of the fact? You know, who, who needs to be told the sun is shining? Well, those who are absolutely blind, right? Well, how tragic that men have to be told the light is now shining in their midst. But this just reveals to us man's fallen condition. The light shone in the darkness, but the darkness did not comprehend it. And therefore, God sent John to bear witness of the light because God was not going to allow his beloved son to come here unrecognized and unannounced. And so as soon as Christ was born into this world, God sent angels to the shepherds to proclaim him to the shepherds. And here, just before his public ministry began, God sent John the Baptist to witness about Christ. But of course, that's what all gospel ministry is about. It's about Christ. It's about giving the truth, the evidence concerning who Jesus Christ is, why he came, and what he has done. I mean, all true Christian ministry is established here as being Christ-dominated, Christ-centered, Christ-focused. I mean, this is the true nature of Christian ministry. It's all about Jesus Christ, because the Christian life is all about Jesus Christ. And so this is what John did. He came to bear witness about the light. He came to point people to the light, to the Savior. But verse 8 clarifies for us that John the Baptist, if you'll notice verse 8, he was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. So the apostle wants it clear that John the Baptist, he wasn't the light. There, there was no light from John the Baptist except what he reflected from his Lord. I mean, all the light comes from Jesus because Jesus is the light. And John came to bear witness about the light, to tell people who Christ is. And he testified that Jesus is the Lord. John said that he wasn't worthy to untie the strap of Jesus' sandal. The Baptist said of, of Jesus, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He said that Jesus ranked before him because he existed before John, even though, Jesus, uh, even though John was older than Jesus. He testified that he saw the Spirit of God descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on Jesus. He said, I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. And then he said, he must increase, but I must decrease. And so John came for a witness to bear witness about the light, the Lord Jesus Christ, so that all might believe through his preaching. And now, in verse 9, the Apostle John turns from John the Baptist and his being a witness to the light to once again speak about Jesus. And he tells us in verse 9 that Jesus is the true light. Notice verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. True here means genuine as opposed to counterfeit. There are a lot of counterfeit lights. I mean, Satan himself... Uh, you know, uh, uh, what's the word I'm trying to think of here? 
disguises, thank you, disguises himself as an angel of light. But that's a false and a counterfeit light. Jesus is the genuine light. This word means real, legitimate, as opposed to false. And according to one Greek lexicon, the, the Greek word translated here as true describes something that not only has the name and appearance, but the genuine article, the, the real nature corresponding to the name. And John's point is that the word Jesus Christ is the true light, the real light, the, the genuine and ultimate self-disclosure of God to man. He is the exact imprint of God's nature according to Hebrews 1. He is the one in whom the Godhead dwells bodily. He is the one in whom the glory of God is revealed, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the true light who, John says, was coming into the world was coming into the world. Well, what does that mean? Well, it speaks of the fact that Jesus had come into the world and was now coming on to the stage of human history. And I say this because the phrase coming into the world is not used elsewhere in John of the birth of a man, but it is used frequently for the coming into human history of Christ. And this is why when Jesus multiplied the loaves and fishes in John chapter 6, we read in John 6, 14, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. That's why Martha said to Jesus in John eleven twenty seven, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And so as one commentator said, this verse should be translated, the true light which gives light to everyone, was even then, during the lifetime of John the Baptist, coming into the world, that is, coming on to the stage of human history. I mean, Jesus is the true light that was coming into the world. John also says Jesus is, you'll notice verse 9, the true light which gives light to everyone. The true light which gives light to everyone. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean when John says the true light which gives light to everyone? What does that mean? Well, first let me tell you what it does not mean. John did not mean that the true light gives light to everyone in the sense that everyone is enlightened so as to be saved. That's universalism. Well, if that's not what it means, then what does it mean? Well, it probably means a number of things. Let me just mention three. First of all, it means that Christ gives light to everyone through general revelation in creation and conscience so that every man has enough light to be responsible before God. And of course, general revelation through creation doesn't produce salvation, but it either leads one to the light of Christ so that they are saved, or it produces condemnation in those who reject the light. Number two, it also refers to the, expo the exposure the light brings when it shines on something. The, the Greek verb means to cast light upon something so that it becomes illuminated. Now this is not, as the Quakers teach, referring to some kind of inner illumination, but rather to the light shining in the darkness of the lost world of fallenness and sin and corruption. 
And so the light shines on every man in the sense that it exposes the corruption and sin that's in everyone's heart. And some will react like cockroaches. You know, when the light's flipped on, they're going to run for cover and hide because they're to hide their evil deeds. As John, we read in John chapter 3, verse 20, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But on the other hand, there will be those who will welcome the light and, and come to the light that they might be saved. In John chapter 3, verse 21, But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And so the light forces a distinction and, and demands a response. Some will respond positively. Others will reject the light and run because they love the darkness. Number three, this also speaks of the fact that Jesus Christ is the only light. The only light the world has is Christ. He is the only light the world has. He is the only light that can enlighten anyone. His light is the only light sufficient for salvation. Everyone who is enlightened genuinely and savingly is enlightened because they have seen the light of Christ who is life and light. So the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ has, has shone in their hearts, piercing and dispelling the darkness of their souls, giving them spiritual life and light. The, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so John's point is that every man has received light in the sense of general revelation and in conscience so that they are without excuse. And the light shines in the darkness, it dispels the darkness, it exposes the heart, it exposes the corruption and, and sin. Some reject it, some run to it, because the light of salvation shines only in Jesus Christ. One commentator put it this way. Christ is to the souls of men what sun, the sun is to the world. He is the center and source of all spiritual light, warmth, life, health, growth, beauty, and fertility. Like the sun, he shines for the common benefit of all mankind, for high and for low, for rich and for poor, for Jew and for Greek. Like the sun, he is free to all. All may look at him and drink health out of his light. If millions of mankind were mad enough to dwell in caves underground or to bandage their eyes, their darkness would be their own fault and not the fault of the sun. So likewise, if millions of men and women love spiritual darkness rather than light, the blame must be laid on their blind hearts. But whether men will see or not, Christ is the true sun and the light of the world. There is no light for sinners except in the Lord Jesus. It's true. And what a great statement that is. There is no light for sinners except in the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, just as the sun is the light that, that lights the world, so Christ, so Jesus is the light that lights every man. There's no other light. No other light. And if you accept the light, you'll be saved. And if you reject the light, you will be judged and condemned. And so in answer to our question, who is Jesus? Well, first of all, John tells us that he is the true light. He is the true light in contrast from all the false lights that are in the world. And as the true light, Christ is the real light, the genuine light. 
And as one man said, as the true light, he is the super eminent light in contrast from all that is ordinary and common. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another of the stars, but all other lights pale before him who is the true light. Jesus is the true light. And now in verses 10 and 11, John tells us about his reception by men. Look at verse 10. And there we read, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. John tells us that he was in the world. Who was? Well, none other than the one who had made it. Jesus Christ. He was in the world. And the Greek word translated world means the world of men and human society, which is now in disobedience to God and under the rulership of Satan. He was in the world, refers to Jesus' incarnation and the 33 years that he lived here among men. So the word became flesh and dwelt among us. I mean, Jesus was the invisible God made visible. He, he was in the world, and the world was made through him. So he was, he was in the very world that he made. I mean, think of that. The, the creator came into his creation. Christ was in the world for 33 years. I mean, for 33 years, he was present in his creation. And for three of those years, he ministered in the land of Israel, demonstrating his power over the forces of nature, over the spiritual world, the demonic realm, over physical illness, and over the realm of death. He put himself on display by being in the world. I mean, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. I mean, what tragic irony. Jesus was in the world, the very world that he made, and so the true light that shines, a revealing light on everyone, came into the world, the world he made, and yet John says the world did not know him. Well, why didn't the world know him? Why didn't the world know and recognize the Lord Jesus Christ when he was here? Well, one answer to that question is that the world did not want to know him. I mean, we know from experience that if a man does not want to see a truth or an injustice for that matter, he will not see it. I mean, there are none so blind as those who refuse to see, right? And so in exactly the same way, men and women did not recognize the Lord Jesus Christ primarily because they did not want to recognize him. John three nineteen and 20, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. When he came into the world, his light shone upon men's darkness, revealed the darkness for what it was, and men hated him for it. They hated him for it. Why? Because they loved their sin. And so they refused to acknowledge him to be God's son, because if they acknowledged him to be God's son, they would also have to acknowledge him as their creator, their holy creator, to whom they were accountable. 
And they weren't about to do that. Why? Because they loved their sin. They loved the darkness. Men and women simply did not want to acknowledge Christ, and they don't want to acknowledge him today. I mean, the same corruption that was in the world at Christ's first coming continues today. Why? Because man hasn't changed. We're more technologically advanced, but man's great problem Uh, an evil, unbelieving heart being dead in trespasses and sin hasn't changed. A second reason the world didn't know the Lord is that the world was unable to know him because of human ignorance and blindness caused by sin. They're spiritually blind. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. When Adam sinned in the garden, He died. The Lord said, In the day of you eat of the tree, you shall surely die. They ate of the tree. He didn't die physically, though, did he? But he did die spiritually. When Adam sinned in the garden, he died spiritually and was separated from God, deserving of eternal punishment. And the consequence of Adam's sin has been passed down to every human being since, so that when we're born into this world, we are born spiritually dead, separated from God, sinners by nature and by choice. All men are dead in trespasses and sin, hopelessly lost, dead and blind to all spiritual truth, and unable to help themselves until God reaches down by grace and lifts them up. You see, this is a picture of man's spiritual inability. And it's a result of man's blindness and his willfulness that the world did not know the Lord Jesus when he was in the world. One man said, this is incomparable testimony to the depravity of man. Put the blazing light of heaven, full of grace, full of truth, in the world of sinners, and when they reject him, you will have the most dramatic evidence of the depth of their depravity. And that's exactly right. Rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ himself is the most devastating indication of the depth of human sin and depravity. And now in verse 11, John heightens the irony of of the world not knowing Jesus. I mean, as shocking and and tragic as the world's rejection of Christ is, John turned to an even greater tragedy. Look at verse 11. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And there's a wordplay in the Greek that the first, his own, refers to his own property or home. So John is telling us when he came into the world, he came to his own in the sense that he came to what belongs to him by right of creation. He came to his own possession, his own domain, his own dwelling place, his own country, his own nation, his own town. But verse 11 goes on, and his own people did not receive him. So the second own refers to the people of Israel, his fellow Jews. 
And how utterly ironic that the one who created all things came to possess what was his, and yet he was rejected by his own people. I mean, they of all people should have recognized Jesus as their promised Messiah. I mean, God had been preparing them for Christ's coming for centuries. The prophets had foretold it. It was all through the scriptures. They had seen him in the types and figures of the Old Testament, in, the, in their temple services, in the sacrifice, in the feast. They professed to be waiting and, and longing for his coming. And Paul said of the Jews in Romans 9, verses 4 and 5, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. And yet when Christ came, even though they professed to be looking and waiting for him, they didn't receive it. Not at all. For the most part, they, they rejected him, despised him, said, we will not have this man rule over us. And they killed him. But instead of repenting of their sin and receiving him as Messiah, they screamed, let him be crucified. His blood be upon us and our children. And they had no idea what they were saying. But he wasn't the kind of Messiah that they envisioned or wanted. They were hoping for a political Messiah who would deliver them from Rome's power and provide peace and prosperity. They didn't see their need for a Savior from sin. Because, of course, to, to think you need a Savior for sin, you have to first see yourself as a sinner, which they did not. And so they rejected the true light. They rejected the creator who made them and who rightfully owned them. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. The light came to his own and his own loved the darkness. They didn't receive the light. And speaking of darkness, we would have to say that this is truly a very dark picture. And it's one that reveals the utter wickedness of men who would reject not only their creator, but also their long-awaited Messiah. His own people did not receive him. And how deep is depravity? Well, as one man said, the greatest illustration of human depravity in history is the Jewish rejection of Christ when he was here. There is nothing parallel to that. Nothing. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. Now who would have thought who would have thought that a people whose believing ancestors had been eagerly awaiting the appearance of the Messiah for ages past would have rejected him when he came among them? Yet that is exactly what they did. But this very thing was expressly foretold by their own prophet. I mean, speaking of Messiah, Isaiah said in Isaiah 53, verses 2 and 3, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when, when they see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Or as John says here, he came to his own, and his own people did not 
receive him. And so would anyone, I mean, would anyone have questioned it if the Lord had turned away from such ungrateful and wicked people in absolute and utter disgust? Well, no one would have questioned it. Everyone would say, well, they had it coming. But that's not what he did. The Lord Jesus submitted to the Father's will. I mean, what, what incomprehensible love for sinners that he would stay on earth among his own who, who rejected him, despised him, in order that he might die the death of the cross to save them. But if the world did not know him, and Israel, his own people, did not receive him, well, does that mean the purpose of God is defeated? No, that could never happen. Right? The purpose of the Lord will stand, according to Proverbs 19, 21. God's plan of redemption and the incredible condescension of the Son would not be in vain. So there is some good news in all of this. The rejection of the true light by his own people did not at all thwart the purposes of God. In fact, the good news is that not not all have or will reject the true light that's come into the world. And now in verses 12 and 13, John tells us that Jesus gives men the right to be children of God and then tells us how to become children of God. And verses 12 and 13 are really very important for a number of reasons, but one, they they strike the balance between human responsibility. You know, we must receive Christ by believing in his name, and then divine sovereignty. Those who believe in him were not born of, of human will or effort, but of God. So very important verses. Notice verse 12. John begins with the word, but. And that little word is a word of contrast, and it makes a dramatic shift from the previous unbelief and rejection. The world's hatred of God and rejection of Christ in no way overrules or frustrates God's plan. I mean, the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ was not a failure, not at all. There will be those who receive him. Look at the verse. Look at verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, He gave the right to become children of God. Isn't that good news? I mean, verse 12 sets two conditions for becoming a child of God. Receiving Jesus and believing Jesus. First is receiving Jesus. John writes, but to all who did receive him. Well, that's wonderful, but what does it mean? What does it mean to receive Jesus? Well, the word translated here as receive means to receive or or accept an object or benefit for which the initiative rests with the giver, but the focus of attention in the transfer is upon the receiver. And it means to willingly accept, to take hold of, to lay hands on, or to acquire. And when speaking of a person, it means to willingly permit access into one's company. And so to receive Christ 
involves more than merely intellectual acknowledgement of Jesus' claims and intellectual agreement with facts about Jesus. It, also, it involves humbling yourself and submitting to him in a personal relationship. It means being willing to receive him into your life, to, to welcome him into your life, every aspect of your life. That's the first condition in verse 12. Receiving Jesus, the, the light of the world, to all who did receive him, and then the second condition is believing to all who did receive him, who believed. But what does that mean? What does that word believed mean? Personal trust? This word translated believe means complete trust and reliance. It means to believe in, to have confidence in, to have faith in, to trust in, cling to, rely upon him alone. And John further defines it as believing in his name. His name refers to all that Jesus is in his person as the eternal word made flesh, the, just the totality of Christ's being, all that he is, all that he does. All that scripture reveals concerning him, all that he did by dying on the cross as a substitute for our sins. Believing in his name means that you stop relying on your own merits and works as a way to approach God, and instead you rely totally and completely on what Christ has done for you upon the cross. You see, becoming a Christian is not based upon what you have done, but solely upon what Christ has done. And so believing in his name means that when you stand before God, your only hope for heaven is not your good works. If that's what you're hoping in, you're done already. Believing in his name means that when you stand before God, your only hope for heaven is not your good works, but rather that Christ died for your sins and you are trusting in him and his finished work alone for salvation and eternal life. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Verse 12 says that all who received him, who believed in his name, and really they're, they're parallels. And you could say that to receive him is to believe in him, and to believe in him is to receive him. One man said, salvation comes to the sinner through receiving Christ, that is, by believing on his name. There is a slight distinction between these two things, though in substance they are one. Believing respects Christ as he is exhibited by the gospel testimony. It is the personal acceptance as truth of what God has said concerning his Son. Receiving views Christ as presented to us as God's gift, presented to us for our acceptance, and as many as, no matter whether they be Jews or Gentiles, rich or poor, illiterate or learned, learned, receive Christ as their personal Savior, to them is given the power or right to become sons or better children of God. Spurgeon said, the idea of receiving Jesus is biblically valid. We need to embrace and receive him unto ourselves. As many as received him is just another way to say those who believe in his name. 
Faith is described as receiving Jesus. It is the empty cup placed under the flowing stream, the penniless hand held out for heavenly alms. And so as many as, as many as, no no matter whether they're Jews or Gentiles, rich or poor, illiterate or educated, slave or free, as many as receive Christ as their own personal Lord and Savior who believed in his name, to them, John says, look, look back at the verse, to them, the Lord Jesus Christ gives the right to become children of God. To them, he gave the right to become children of God. You see, when we receive Christ and believe in him, he gives A lot of things. But here we're talking about one specific thing. He gives the right or the power to become children of God. And to become is a creative word. It speaks of being created. And we were created physically, and as believers in Christ, we have become children. We have been created as spiritual children. And what is this called? This the second creation. What is it called? The new birth, right? The new birth, being born again, being born from above. The fact that those who believe become children of God means that all people are not God's children by natural birth. To become God's child requires a spiritual new birth. You must be born again, Jesus said to Nicodemus. Spurgeon said, all men are not the sons of God. The doctrine of the universal fatherhood is utterly untrue. They only become the sons of God who receive Christ and believe on his name, else else are they heirs of wrath, even as others. He gave the right to become children of God to those who received him and believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. He gave. You see, no one can attain the new birth by by his or her own power, merit, or ability. Only God can grant it. He gave. Christ gave. Jesus gave this to us. He gave us the right, the power, the, the authority, the privilege to become children of God. And the word gave speaks of giving an object, usually something of of great value. And that's certainly true here. Jesus gave us something of infinite value, eternal value. It's, It's a gift of His grace. He gave us the right to become children of God. Because of Jesus, we who deserve death are now made to share in God's inheritance as His children. I mean, we don't deserve this. And we could never say, never, we can never say, I've given myself the right to be called the child of God. Because only Jesus can do it. He has the authority to declare that sinners, that God-haters like us, are now fully accepted children of the Father. That's an amazing truth. And this is a truth that the Apostle John never got over. Because when he was an old man and wrote 1 John, he said in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are.
I mean, what an amazing truth and what an even amaz- a, a greater privilege. But it's the privilege of everyone who receives him and everyone who believes in his name. I mean, no one would come to believe in Jesus unless he gave us the right to become children of God. No one. Because we are saved entirely by grace through faith. And that is not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. Because God has chosen us from the beginning for salvation. And to all who are saved, Christ graciously gives the privilege of being God's children. He adopts us as members of his Father's family. He makes us sons and daughters of the Lord Almighty. I mean, we are cared for with infinite love by a Father in heaven who, uh, for his Son's sake, is well pleased with us. In time, he provides us with everything that is for our good, and in eternity, he will give us a crown of glory that that doesn't fade away. I mean, privileges like these are are the possession of, of all in every age who receive Christ by faith and follow him as their Lord and Savior. They are children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. They're they're born again by by a new and a heavenly birth. You know, maybe you've dreamed about what it it would be like to be the the child of a wealthy family where you you could have everything you ever wanted. Or maybe you never had parents who loved you and and you wish that you could have been born into a family where you were loved and, and cared for. Well, I have some good news for you. We get all of that and much, much more as God's children. Verse 12 tells us the human side of salvation. John is telling us what is required of sinners. Salvation comes to the sinner through receiving Christ, that is, by believing in his name. And then just in case anyone dared to give themselves credit for being a child of God, John says in verse 13 that salvation is God's work, not our own. God's choosing us more than our choosing Him. Now think about this, folks. Just think about it. Use your minds. We're to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Don't check your brain out at the door when you go into any church. Use your mind. So think about it. If men are as sinful as they are, and they are, and if they are as wretched as they are, and if they love the darkness as they do, and if they are spiritually dead and spiritually blind, how can they possibly believe? I can speak to a corpse all day long, but it's never going to answer back. It's never going to give any kind of a response. It's never going to do anything except lay there. Why? Because it's dead. So how can a spiritually dead person possibly receive Christ? How can they possibly become children of God? How can they possibly be born again? How can it happen? Well, this is how it happens. 
Those who receive and believe in Jesus are born of God, not from human power or will. And in verse 13, John describes those in verse 12 who believe in Jesus and become as children as those. Look at verse 13. Who were born. It only makes sense, right? To be a child, you have to be born. So to those who were born, this is speaking about the new birth. This is speaking about regeneration. So to those who believe in Jesus and become his children, they are those who are born again. How? So how are they born? We'll look back at verse 13. Not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but what? Of God. Ultimately, ultimately, it's not man's will that produces salvation, but God's will. And this explains to us why the few receive Christ. It's because the few are born of God. It's always the few and the many in the Bible, always. And the few who receive Christ are those who are born of God. Just as verse 12 gives us the human side, we're to receive and believe. 13 now, verse 13 gives us the divine side. The divine side is the new birth. And the new birth takes place, as John says, not of blood. You say, well, what does that mean? The new birth takes place not of blood. What does that mean? Well, it means that the new birth is not a matter of heredity. It means that regeneration does not run in our veins. It's not passed down from one generation to the next. You're not going to pass on your new birth in Christ to your offspring. That's not how you become a child of God. It's, it's not because of your parents or your grandparents or your family. The new birth is not a matter of heredity. Now look what else John says. He, he says, nor does it come of what? The will of the flesh. What does that mean? What's that speaking about? Well, the will of the flesh. The will of the natural man. It does not come about, he says, by the will of the flesh, because the will of the natural man is opposed to God. And the natural man has no will or desire for or toward God until he's been born again. The new birth does not come by personal desire, willpower, or effort of any kind. So it's not a matter of heredity. It's not a matter of the, the will of the natural man. And then John says, nor is it brought about by the will of man. So what does that mean? Well, in other words, the new birth is not brought about by the well-meaning efforts of friends, nor by uh, the persuasive powers of, of the preacher or anyone else, but of God. Only God can do this miracle. And loved ones, being born again is, is an absolute miracle. I was laying in bed this morning just thinking and, and praying about this, and, and it just, I was just struck about what a miracle the new birth is. I mean, you look at the world and how corrupt and sinful and depraved. How can a heart like that ever change? Only by the miracle of the new birth. 
It's an absolute miracle. It's the greatest miracle. I mean, all three expressions of blood, will of the flesh, and will of man describe human origins from the standpoint of human initiative and human action. And John tells us that our spiritual birth does not originate from or through any human intent or endeavor. I mean, as Pastor Chuck always used to say, God is the initiator, always the initiator, and man is the responder. The spiritual birth does not originate from or through any human intent or endeavor. Rather, those who are born in the family of God as his children are those who are born of God. God is the creator. He is the ultimate cause. He is the initiator. It is through his will and work that men become his children. And this is played out in greater detail in in Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. I would encourage you to read it. But just put concisely in biblical terms, we could say it like this. Uh, Jonah 2.9, salvation is of the Lord. Psalm 3.8, salvation belongs to the Lord. John 6.44, Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And then in John 6.65, Jesus said, Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. The birth of a child of God is a supernatural work of God in regeneration. A person welcomes Jesus and responds in faith and obedience to him, but the mysterious work of the Holy Spirit is the cause of regeneration. And so just as we had nothing to do whatsoever with our physical birth, so we had nothing to do with our spiritual birth. We can't take credit for it. We can't boast in our wise decision to believe in Christ. All the glory must go to God. And certainly there was a point in time when we made a conscious decision to put our faith and trust in Christ alone. Certainly that happens. But only as a result of the work that he has already done in our hearts. He initiates. And we respond. And then the question always comes up, well, do we first believe and and then are born again, or are we born again and then believe? Well, they both happen at the same instant, so it's, it's a question of logical, not chronological order. And the clearest verse in answering the question is 1 John 5.1, where John writes, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. In other words, believing in Christ is evidence that God has given you new life through the new birth. And one man commenting on that verse in in 1 John said, it shows clearly that believing is the consequence, not the cause of the new birth. Our present continuing activity of believing is the result and therefore the evidence of our past experience of new birth by which we became and remain God's children. I mean, there's a mystery here that, that we can't fully resolve, that we can't explain. There's always this tension between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. And where you get into trouble is trying to explain each side out in in, in infinite detail. You're going to get off the rails on on one side or the other. We just have to accept the fact that there's a mystery here. It's a mystery we can't resolve this side of heaven. 
You say, well, what if somebody wants to believe in Christ? Then tell them, call them to believe in Christ. What if somebody doesn't want to? Well, they don't want to, so what's their problem? We're to proclaim the gospel to all men. Call all men to come to faith in Christ. The man is spiritually dead. And unless God does something in their heart, unless the Holy Spirit regenerates them, nothing's going to happen. And so I could have somebody, I could lead somebody in a prayer uh, every day for the next 20 years. But unless the Holy Spirit of God regenerates them, nothing's going to happen. Salvation is a work of God. It is a work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration. It's not merely the matter of signing a card or praying some prayer. I mean, today that people have, you know, want you to pray this prayer as if it's a magical incantation of some kind, that merely by the merely praying, by merely praying this prayer, you're somehow at that moment born again. Regeneration is a work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. The new birth is a divine work accomplished by the Holy Spirit applying the Word in living power to the heart. As Spurgeon said, sons of God are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. To receive Christ, the man must be born of God. It is the simplest thing in all the world, one would think, to open the door of the heart and let him in. But no man lets Christ into his heart till first God has made him to be born again, born from above. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You see, the end of the story is not the tragedy of rejection, but the grace of receiving and believing and becoming a child of God. So who is Jesus? Well, as we saw last week, he's the eternal word, the creator of everything who reveals the life and light of God to this dark world. And as we've seen this morning, he is the true light. He's the real light, the genuine light, the light that lights every man. And he is the one who gives the right to become children of God to all who receive him, that is, all who believe in his name, all who have been born again, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Why? Because salvation belongs to the Lord. And I don't know about you, but this makes me want to know Jesus more than I already do. It makes me want to know him more. I mean, does this make you want to pursue a deeper and more intimate relationship with Jesus? I hope so. And I pray that God will give each one of us a desire to know his beloved son in a a much deeper way than, than we already do. Because as I said last week, and as is said in our men's and women's study, 
And we can have as much of God as, as we want, speaking of our, the depth of our relationship with him. So we can have as much of God as we, as we want, and in fact, we already do. So what does that say about your relationship with him? How much of God do you have? How much of Christ do you have? Don't you want to know him and and love him more and more? You know, I've shared this, I I know, multiple times over the years. Some of you will immediately remember it. Others uh, perhaps have not heard it, but I just want to share it again. Um, I I was in in China uh, on a number of occasions. And on one occasion, it was in 1988, and I can remember because uh, the gentleman that we uh, met was 88 years old, and he was born in, in 1900, so I can, I can remember the year. Anyway, this gentleman was um, a colleague of Watchman Nee. Of course, Watchman Nee died in prison, uh, and, and this man, Woman Dao, um, was also a pastor, but he was converted. He was 88 years old. He was converted at age 14. And so he'd been a believer for 74 years. I don't remember what year he started pastoring, but he spent 25 years in prison for his faith. Uh, the, the, the communists kicked in his door one night and hauled him and his wife both off to prison. They had one son who relatives took, and he and his wife never heard from each other for the next 25 years. They didn't know if... Uh, one of the other was dead. But he survived 25 years in prison, some of that hard labor in a Chinese coal mine, all because he was a Christian and a pastor. He was released eventually. I believe his wife was relieved first, and he was released. And we met them. They lived in a little apartment there in uh, Shanghai. And uh, myself and, and Two or three other people were privileged to get to go to their apartment, just spend a little time with them. He was frail, probably weighed 100 pounds, soaking wet, uh, almost blind, could hardly hear. His wife, Deborah, interpreted for him. Um, and he still preached every Sunday. People would just show up out of the woodwork, come to his little apartment. He would preach, and they would just kind of slither away. It was the government still watched him. And all of that to say, when we were getting ready to leave, we asked him, well, what, what can we pray for you for? And I suppose we were thinking he was going to ask for some, you know, something physical or, or material. Uh, I suppose that's what we were thinking. But he only had one prayer request. And his one prayer request was, will you please pray that I will love Jesus more? Now look, this guy had been a believer for 74 years, a pastor for, I'm going to say, at least 50. Spent 25 years in prison for his faith. I mean, this guy had been through the fire. But all he wanted was to love Jesus more. That's what I want for us. I want us to to have that kind of a desire for Jesus. That, that our, 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 our primary request ever and always will be that I might love Jesus more. That Jesus will become more precious to me. Why? Because everything we do as a believer should be flowing out of our love for Christ. You know, it's, it's a sad reflection upon our own 
sinfulness and inability that we even have to ask the Lord in prayer to help us love him more. But we're weak, frail, sinful men and women. Weak, frail, sinful vessels. And we need him. We desperately need him. He doesn't need us. But we desperately need him. And my prayer as we move forward in these studies about Jesus is that we'll come to love him more. More and more. And that's a, I'd say that's a a good goal, isn't it? To love Jesus more. And you know, I suppose the question then in closing this morning is, uh, are you a child of God? You know, have you been born again into the family of God? You know, are you a child of God? If not, you can be. But you have to quit trusting in yourself. And you have to humble yourself and submit your life to him. You must receive him by believing in his name so you might become a child of God. You know, being born of God into his family. Let's stand and pray. On behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, we hope and pray this study will help you continue growing in the Word. If you've been blessed by today's message, or if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can call us at 530-547-4400. Again, 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the church website at calvarybiblepc.org. Calvarybiblepc.org. Thank you for listening and may God richly bless you. It's your love.